From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digiter. Sports Digiter is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digiter's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? Uh, this week, it's an, a very special episode of The Groundsman, uh, coming to you from the place that over the last four years has been the last few words you've heard on just about every podcast. We've finished everyone with uh, As In The Lake, and we are now by the lake, in beautiful Lake Como, one of our groundsmen, uh, we've excused because he's been busy the last couple of days, but joining me, uh, as always, the third groundsman himself, Giles Morgan. Hi, mate. Grant, what a joy. I have to say, I have never, ever sat and uh, held a microphone and had a view as we have now looking over Lake Como. Quite amazing. And even the, the, the live audience that we have in front of us are not putting me off this amazing alpine view. Well, we're doing it. We need to prove to the people listening at home that there is an audience here. Can we have a little bit of noise from the audience just to prove you? Boos are perfectly acceptable. There we go. See? See? They didn't believe the sound effects are great. So, listen, what we're going to do uh, this week is, as we normally do with these conversations, Giles and I, there's a couple of things that we want to get off our chest, talking about the world of sport. And as I say, we've got a, a very special guest joining us for what we hope will be another engaging conversation. Um, but, Giles, this week in the world of sport, what's, uh, what's been floating your boat? Well, I think the thing that we both want to talk about, and you mentioned to me earlier today, was... The, the, the passing, not, not literally, but the passing, one of the greatest of all sports people ever in Roger Federer. Yeah. And signing off as he has from a career that, a bit like Tiger Woods, I guess, is, has reinvented a game that was already at the very top. And yet so unlike Tiger Woods in so many ways. In so many ways, he's not, not at all like Tiger. Um, I've worked with both of them. What's amazing, actually, I, I remember it was sort of rather surreal. In 2005 in China, um, in the days of uh, IMG's sort of absolute zenith of the of the golf world is we were putting on a golf tournament with my former company hsbc um and it was suggested that during the pro-am that we should have a lunch and tiger was going to be there for lunch and that was all terribly exciting and uh, roger federer would like to join as would rafa nadal who was just coming through and i i reflect back on that now if you think of the tiger woods that was then yeah. in 2005 six and then the extraordinary influence of of not just Roger, but also Rafa and, and Novak. We've lived through an extraordinary 17 years since then. Yeah, I mean, I, I was looking at the stats the other day, and between the three of them, they won every Grand Slam tournament for 16 years. If you think about that, it's, I mean, it's truly extraordinary. Right? We've seen three of the greatest of all time, arguably the three greatest of all time, playing against each other in the same era, completely different styles, completely different relationships with the public. And I think for me, and I know Rod shares my view about Federer, no matter what the records say, and you look at the head-to-head 
uh, records of the three. And arguably, Nadal has a much better record against Federer, as does Djokovic. But to me, of the three, as much as I respect uh, Djokovic as what he's done, as much as I love Nadal as a man and an athlete, there's no question in my mind that Federer will be the greatest of all time for me. And I think a lot of people, some of the, the eulogies that have appeared in the newspapers have really said that, that the Nadal and Djokovic couldn't be who they are without Federer being, because uh, he was the first great of the, of the triumvirate, but played tennis in a way that, that really no one had ever seen before. The, the hard work that goes into it to make it look effortless. Um, but also he changed a lot. In the early days, he was quite a firebrand. And then he developed this new persona on court, which was pure class and pure, it seemed to be effortless. And I think raised the bar that created the bar to be raised for the others. And something that I know that Roger is, is, is hot on, I think probably all of us scratch our heads a bit, is at the passing of this era, because Rafa, presumably his body is going to capitulate. Novak may go on for another 30 years because he's quite bendy. Um, <laughs> is is, what is what is next for tennis? Because it's been the most spoilt riches of all in the men's game, and it's, it's, it's got its work cut out now. Well, I mean, look, and to lose Serena Williams at the same time from the women's game, I mean, we've talked a little bit about tennis here this week, but it hasn't come up that much, but there is a sport in drastic need of a makeover. You know, and we look at, we've talked about cricket a lot in the podcast and all the different formats that cricket's come up with, which, you know, has been smart because they're fighting the Indian Premier League but when we had our last conversation, we talked about the 100, and then I, you know, I heard about the 60 in the, <laughs> happening in the Caribbean. And you, know, you wonder what's next for cricket. Is it going to cannibalise? So what does tennis do at this point to, to try and grab an audience that, that was so strongly hung on those personalities? What do you do? I don't know, and that goes way over my pay grade, but I, and, and obviously looking at different formats, speed, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, like test match cricket has its kind of, you need the five setters at the slams to kind of keep that centered. Um, I'm not sure because paddle, um, which we've talked about and the industry is talking about a lot, is, is a very much easier game to play. So it's easier to understand for young people. It's very fast, it's also very dramatic. So you've got that challenge coming on. Tennis is difficult as well. Tennis yes. is a really quite a difficult sport, much harder than perhaps people realise, and certainly very difficult to be good. So it's harder to bring kids on as well. Um, I suspect, though, you know, there, there may have been wranglings, I'm sure, in the end of the Sampras and the Agassi era, that people thought, how can you beat that? And they did. before that, you'd had the Edberg and Becker era, and before that, you'd had the Borg, McEnroe, and, and so it goes. I suspect in five years' time, I disagree with Roger on this. It's, I'm always, he's far enough away from it at the moment, so um, I, I feel I can disagree with him without getting clouted. Um, is I believe that tennis will come back. I think it's a fundament, one of the fundamental sports, and it just requires new, new heroes. Now, is part of that lodged in the fact that, to you, a paddle was something you spent your life up the creek without <laughs> until this came along? <laughs> yeah, yeah, still there. <laughs> Still right up that creek, but there we are. I'm hoping to come back down at some point. The other sport that we haven't really talked about this week at all, which um, I find interesting but perhaps not surprising, is golf. And that's something we've spent an awful lot of time on the podcast. I really have to get going any minute now. But but, yeah, we we haven't talked about this week, but it's something that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. And the, the arrival of Liv goes to everything we've talked about this week in terms of disruptive presence in in a marketplace. Um, my views on Liv are, 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 are well known. Uh, I am Roger. Roger 
beats me up all the time for just kicking and screaming against what's bound to happen. You know, the Super League is something that's come up this week as, as an inevitability at some point in time. Um, you know, you've you've had a fantastic seat in the world of golf at, at if not the top table. You know all the people at the top table very, very well. You know, Guy and Martin and all these guys that are there running the game. Uh, what's your sense? As they've unveiled Cam Smith, uh, Matsuyama didn't go, which is interesting. Um, but how has that conversation evolved now the tour are absolutely, you can see them having to try and think, OK, shit, we've got a problem here, we need to adjust? Well, it's interesting because right as we record this, the President's Cup is, is going on. You've got uh, teams that may not have been the, the exact teams from a year ago, if you sort of mean. So there, there's a challenge there, and the Ryder Cup has a, a major challenge as well, for obvious reasons, even though we don't know what the court case ruling will be in, in February. In some ways, the disruption for golf, and, and again, we've talked about this a lot on the podcasts, it's probably good for golf because the disruption was required, that the powers that be have sat back for a long, long time, just hoping that 72 whole stroke play golf tournaments were enough. The, the thing that I'm actually most sad about is that, and I think this is quite a fundamental issue that the game has not addressed as yet, is that one of the reasons that people particularly sponsors, get involved in the game. And it is a very well-sponsored sport. And the reason it's well-sponsored is because the demographic is so wealthy. People who play golf around the world are an interesting demographic, particularly for financial services. And there are very few banks that don't sponsor golf in some form. But banks also have a reputational requirement in terms of trusted and, and, and there's an honesty and an integrity, of which the game of golf has always prided itself on being the kind of bastion in a, in a world of sport that fair play, integrity, honesty, all of those things are fundamental to the sport. And anyone who plays golf understands that from sort of from the first time on the tee box. The, the way you play, the way that you, you concede putts, all, all of those things that you as a golfer absolutely understand. Every golfer does. With the, the live introduction, but also actually the reaction from the PGA Tour, I would argue, and just the tours in general, is that it feels like the, the very essence of the game has been reduced quite a lot. It feels like a game of pure greed. And I'm talking about the top level, I'm talking about the pros. Right. But someone like Rory McIlroy, who I know very well, and he is one of the nicest guys on, on, on the planet, and he really genuinely is a good guy. But when you hear him doing the PR speakies he has to do on behalf of the PGA Tour, he's the poster child that sort of tries to, to right the ship, is all of them. I, in my view, are looking very, very greedy. Whether you're a poulter on one side of the fence or whether you're R uh, Rory or Tiger on the other, everybody is just talking about money. And somehow for me, and I wonder if there's going to be a, a ripple effect on that, is that sponsors who are looking to try and um, utilize partnership to convey their own brand message, I'm not sure the PGA Tour golf tournaments feel like that they are the, um, the embodiment now of the values that big companies yeah. would want. And I think that may be a real challenge for them. Well, you know, as, as I've watched this, and we've talked about this this week, um, in terms of comm strategies, in terms of disruption, you know, the, to me, the Super League, we've discussed the things that that got wrong, um, the, the promotion and relegation jeopardy being a big part of that, but the Live Tour, what I find extraordinary is, you talk about misreading an audience. When you come out and make that all about the money, right, you come out in a, in a, in a sport that, prides itself on history and tradition and you know, winning the claret jug. I haven't got a clue. I'm a huge golf fan. I have no clue what Cam Smith earned for winning the claret jug. No clue. I couldn't tell you what the Masters win, nothing. 
So for the, for the, for the um, Saudis to come out and say, right, we're paying this guy 100 million, we're paying this guy 50 million, here's all the numbers, isn't it great how much money's available here? I watched literally five minutes of the first tournament just because I was curious. And A, it, it just didn't work for me the way they covered it, but you know, I saw Phil Mickelson hit a shot out the rough, playing with Dustin Johnson, the two headliners, and you could see in his eyes, just dead. He didn't care. He hit the shot, he didn't spend an awful lot of time thinking about it. And so that message that this is all about money, if they'd have said, look, we are going to create another tour, we're going to have the best players in the world playing on the greatest courses in the world, you can leave the tradition out of it, that's what we're going to do. We're going to create a fantastic tour of great players playing on great courses. I think that's all they needed to do to have a really good shot making this something that, it, that really changed the PGA Tour. And they made it all about money, which I think was a catastrophic mistake. Yeah, and I, I think that there's been some errors there. I think also what's been very interesting and very smart is that the RNA and um, the US Golf Association and Augusta National, so three of the four majors in particular, and the PGA of America, but maybe that less so, is they've kept very quiet. Yeah, <laughs> They have kept very, very quiet. They just want the best golfers in the world to come and play. Will Cam Smith defend? Of course he will. He has to come back to the Open Championship. It, the, 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 the Open Championship has nothing to do with the PGA Tour, nor does Augusta. And that's really important. And I suspect that I, I believe at some point there will be a sort of kumbaya and they will all come together and this will be figured out. It may take a little yeah. while because it has to, because it's gone too far. The money's too much. But I think that the real power brokers in this equation will be the bastions of golf that say enough now. Because, well, I hope so. Well, I think we all do because it's really, it's really mucky. And, and I, again, I had a conversation with two or three of the players who've actually been on the, on the podcast who, who have gone to live um, about how it all is. And I think, you know, one of them in particular, Lee Westwood, who um, has been very open about it, he says, I'm not going to win another major. I'm taking the money. And I, I kind of admire that honesty. He's been pretty honest about it. But now he's getting caught up in Twitter wars and, and all the rest of anything. But he hasn't been honest about it in public, right? He, he, and I think that's a big problem that golf fans have had. Is like, if you just say how could I turn this money down? Yeah. People would go, you know what, I agree with you. But to make it all about growing the game yeah, and all this stuff, that was, which, which, well, which I, as you could clear, was that, that was a common strategy. Here's the points, here are the talking points yeah. that you've got to say. If Lee had been like that in public, it would have been a wholly different experience. Well, it's those bullet points from PR companies. And I remember talking to Roger. We, we've had some guests on, very few, but in the early days where it was PR companies of, best, of guests coming on, whether a PR company had said, oh, you must come in and, and join the podcast. And we used to get very frustrated because you knew that four or five bullet points were going to be communicated, which wasn't an authentic conversation. And that feels a little bit like you've got these golfers reading from a script rather than just t tell us what you think. Yeah. So I, it's, it's been a sad time for golf, and I'm very sad because the calendar, weirdly, the golf had had a very good COVID, if that's possible. Yeah. They, they'd really pulled together the tours. It all felt like it was, there was some sort of semblance of normalcy despite, despite the problems of the world. And you look at it now, it's, I wouldn't want to be a sponsor of, uh, of, on the yeah. tour right now. Well, you don't need the sponsorship money if you live. That's the, that's, that's the good news, I guess. <laughs> well, look, talking of golf, we've got a guest joining us. Uh, who has nothing to do with golf. <laughs> so, so, how's that for a segue? <laughs> so why don't you explain who's going to sit in this third, this mysterious third chair with us for a well, chat? Well, during, the, uh, during the, the, the sports summit at Como, um, as you'd expect, perhaps being in the centre of, of the north of Italy, a lot of the conversations were about football. And I guess if we'd had this uh, the summit in America, we'd been talking about the big four sports. If we'd been doing it in India, we'd be talking about cricket as the kind of, the, the, where the, the foundation um, 
stone for, for the conference. But actually, one of the things that we haven't really talked about at all is the Olympics at all, which is arguably the biggest sports event in the world. And when it descends on a city, it tends to dominate. And in particular at the Olympics, of course, athletics um, is at the heart of the, of the Olympic movement and is probably the sport that is easiest for any human being to understand because it's so fundamental. It's about running, jumping and throwing. And it's something that we all learn as kids in our, in our sporting journeys. It starts with a form of athletics. It's also quite easy to understand as a sport, it tends to be cross the line or what went furthest and pretty binary. So for me, it's been very interesting that we haven't talked about athletics and therefore it seemed to make a lot of sense that we should uh, address that. And we're very lucky that John Ridgen, who is the chief executive of World Athletics, was with us in, in Como, listening, writing a lot of notes because his is a sport that is a giant of a sport that has been going probably longer than any in, in organized form. I think the IAAF was founded in about 1912. So it's been going for, for, for a very long time. And yet has been, it's had some, some sort of the heydays of particularly if you're British in the 70s yeah. and particularly the 80s, athletics was right up there at the very, very top. And those heroes of the sport were British superstars at the, at the highest level. And then over the last 15, 20 years, it's been beset by a series of, of, of challenges of, of corruption under previous presidencies. There's been drugs, which has probably been ever present as drugs and performance enhancing um, has, always, has always been there under the circuit. And then there's been gender, the kind of the modern debate about um, the challenges therein. So, and yet you have world championships, which become the ultimate events, which turn on um, floodlights and cities erupt when you... You do want to see the bolts run 100 metres. You do want to know who is the fastest 400 metre runner in the world. And yes, a sport that has got to adapt to, to the new world that we talk about in this, in this podcast all the time. John is incredibly well qualified to talk about this. Not only is, uh, is he a, a sports administrator and worked in the world of commerce as sport for a very, very long time. But before that, he was a proper athlete. He was a grown up athlete. He was an Olympian. He took part in uh, two Olympics in, in Seoul and then in Atlanta, had some injuries in the middle, so didn't make Barcelona, and was a silver medalist, I think, in 87 um, at the 110 meter hurdles, and I think beat Colin Jackson, and I say that as a Welshman, so immediately he comes in at a disadvantage. <laughs> I'll be looking for tough questions, but what a pleasure to, to welcome to, to uh, Are You Not Entertained to John Ridgen. John Ridgen. Good knowledge. 1912 creation of he's world got it all down. he's got it all written down he's done he's done his research john thanks for doing this it's uh we've been have, having a chance to chat privately throughout this conference which has been a tremendous experience um if i can first i'd love to get your thoughts because you haven't had a chance really to take the microphone on on some of the things you've heard up here this week and some of the things you're going to take away from it well it's it's been a, a real privilege to be here um I've never heard such honest conversation for two days. It's It's been brilliant. If I was a sports journalist, I'd have lots of stories to, to, to go. <laughs> Don't worry, I know it's Chatham House rules, but there's been some really interesting um, stories. And uh, and look, it has been a lot about football. Inevitably, that's the big beast of, of, of sport. Um, but what's interesting for me is, um, even though you know athletics, track and field is a, uh, let's call it a medium-sized sport commercially, um, actually, we're still uh, facing a lot of the same threats, a lot of the same challenges. Okay, piracy is not a big issue for athletics because uh, our big contracts are actually mainly with free-to-air uh, broadcasters. But the issue of media fragment fragmentation, of Gen Z consuming their 
their, their sport in different ways, all those problems and challenges um, we we also um, face. And um, I'm slightly reassured the fact that not everyone's worked out the solutions yet, because we certainly haven't. But um, um, uh, but I take away a lot of optimism, even though we face in the sports industry, wherever you fit in in the ecosystem, um, the same challenge. I, I, I take away um, the optimism that, that what I've heard, certainly yesterday was, if you can make sure that you keep your product as relevant and entertaining and fan orientated and you put your fan hat on, not your rights holders hat on and just think about yourself, actually, it should work out. Um, you know, the, the business model will evolve and providing you are still fan orientated and the fans want what you've got, the business model will evolve. And um, and, and actually, one, one, one final point of optimism as well, I would say that, that you know, we won't lead, a sport like, like track and field, I suspect, won't lead the solution. We'll follow some of the big brains in, in this room, okay? Um, and that's fine. But a sport like athletics, which is not maxed out in terms of our monetization, is not in the same boat as something like football that, that needs every dollar, um, I would hope that might mean we can be a little less threatened and we can be a little braver and hopefully a little more innovative because we're not under the immediate threats of needing every dollar in to pay for those player contracts, wherever yeah. it might be. So I hope that might even be an advantage to us. John, we, we've talked a lot um, about narrative and a lot of the sports that we've, we've heard of, we talk about them, you know, how, how do they sell to their public? Couple of questions. Do you know, you have a huge fan base, but I think you call it a passive fan base. So a lot of people love athletics when it's on, but they may not be regular consumers. A, do you know what people are thinking about athletics? Do you research that? And B, do you think that athletics needs the kind of the the the, the tech um, g up that some sports have? And I don't mean that in fan data or anything like that. But is it enough just to have a hundred meter runner running? or whatever it is, or someone throwing the pole vault, or does it need some technological wizardry in the 21st century to make the binary brilliance of athletics stand out more? Because one of the things that I feel is, I don't think people realize how good athletes yeah. actually are. Yeah. Uh, yes, so a so couple of questions in there. Um, um, uh, the first one, do we know who our fans are? No, we don't, the truth be known. So we are a sport where, certainly for our big moments, our world championships, um, the Olympic Games, um, another of those really big global championship moments, we're generally on free-to-air um, uh, platforms. So we have hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of people that, 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 that watch the action. Fantastic. But, but we don't really have a relationship beyond that. It, from a social media perspective, I think for an international federation, we're doing reasonably well. We almost have 10 million social media followers across our pl platforms, which, you know, again, for an international federation, I think that's reasonably good, okay? But again, it's very passive in, in, in that relationship. So um, one of the things that, that I know we need to do to be more you know, future-proofed is, is we have to have um, you know, much better data. We have to have an ability to actually know who our fans are, have a direct relationship with them, understand what they want more. And so do we have that right now? I mean, we've only got a, a database right now of some 200,000 people, okay, which is woeful for a sport like athletics. We should have millions, but we're committed and we're creating the strategy now. And you know, over the next few years, we will build that database because we realize it's essential. 
and we can do it and, and we will do it. Um, so hopefully I can come back in the future and tell you all about that. So, so from a technology perspective, you know, we, do, we do need to do that. And we also accept that we've tried to do it ourselves internally. We actually, we don't have the skills internally, so we are going to have to do it with external help. So athletics was basically created deep in the 19th century. I mean, if we were all sitting around 150 years ago, athletics didn't look that different <laughs> didn't look that different than it does now. And, but if you know, all the big brains in this room was creating modern athletics, you know, the 100 metres probably would look fairly similar, but a lot of the events wouldn't. Um, so you take you know, some of the field events, you take the long jump. The long jump takes over an hour to complete, um, multiple jumps. You can win at any point across that, that hour of, of competition. There's no sort of moment of drama or decision like you get in the 100 metres. And so you create it differently. And also half the jumps are no jumps. So you talk about technology, we've got to move to things like takeoff zones. Technology is all there, it's, it's yeah. easy to do. Um, um, so, so things like that. What we're trying to do, um, so we're just at the start of this journey, we're trying to use technology better to tell the story better. So I'll give you an example. Um, Mondo Duplantis, fantastic pole vaulter, competes for Sweden at the World Championships a couple of months ago. He broke the world record, um, six metres and 21 centimetres. So great jump. We were able to put a, a graphic up literally a few seconds later to say, actually, there was 14.9 centimetres of clear air between him and the bar. So actually, the world record should be over six metres 30. So, so we're just trying to use data to, to, to engage more. But, but there's a lot more what we can do. But 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 one of the big goals going forward is we do need to know our audience better and be able to speak to them more directly. Um, so I, I accept we're you know, behind on many of the sports that are talked about here in terms of the big professional sports, but we will catch up. Yeah, John, you, you, talk, you mentioned there about storytelling and, and using technology to tell a story better. And um, I was chatting with Caroline about this yesterday. You know, athletics is tailor-made for the drive to survive era. Right? I mean, you, what you have with drive to survive, yeah, these amazing young men with balls of steel hurtling around the track at 300 miles an hour, but with enormous amounts of money, big teams, household brands behind them. Whereas in athletics, you have an individual training for four years to reach the pinnacle of their sport. Yeah. And you know, we as viewers, as human beings, we can identify with the struggle. We can't identify with what it's like to win a gold medal, but we can identify with failing to reach your goals. You know, there's, there's, there's this, this, this idea about how amazing success is, but I think for, for the rest of us, failure is, is even more captivating because we've all had to bounce back from that. You know, so, so when you look at the world of athletics, you have this unbelievably rich pool of stories because every single one of those athletes has a story to tell. Is that something that you're talking about at those levels in terms of, hey, let's, let's look at Drive to Survive and talk about Run to Survive? And, and a second part of the question, when you talk about um, you know, how, how to deal with the Gen Z audience. And Roger will want to know this as well. How do you take the 100 metres and turn it into snackable content for Gen Z? Yeah, so... Um, you're going to answer the second part of the question. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so, so the first part of the question is, you know, we're working hard at creating new content strands for particularly younger, younger audience. And part of it is we're going to create a doco series. Sure enough, um, it, it's obviously worked magically well yeah. for F1. God, let's just hope we can create anything like as successful as that. But we've got the funding in place, so we have the funding in place. We're just going into you know what the creative looks like. So we don't know at this stage 
what it's going to look like, but we're looking to kick that off next year in terms of the creation of the content. So, so that that's important. We're also, and, and I know it's just scratching the surface, but we're also trying new things as well. So, for example, around our World Championships in America, the first time we've been in America, all part of our strategy to try and grow the sport in America. They have the best athletes in America, but the, the fan base is pretty small there yeah. in reality. We, we, you know, we employed a bunch of, of Gen Z influencers just to create lots of, of additional content that wasn't designed for me, it was designed for others. Um, we did some fun things like we gave some of the leading athletes like Atting Mo, who is the uh, won the 800 metres, we gave them individual QR codes. So Atting Mo ran with a QR code stuck to a leg. And, and, if, and if you, and she put it on her social media and all the rest of it. And what that QR code did was unlock a series of short films about her life and her interests and her family and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, so we, we, we're, so we're, trying, we're trying new things, seeing what's working, seeing what's not. We've got a, an agency in the US we're working with to, to try and do more of this, of this sort of, of connection with the younger age group. In terms of the, the short form content, um, we'd love to do more. So at the World Championships recently, we, we uh, did a concept called Socially, which was all the athletes had stills we gave them stills of them competing at the World Championships minutes after they finished competing so they could share it on their, on their um, social media. I'd love to have given them moving images of them competing, but we can't because we're in this transition and I've, I've heard over the last couple of days about the transition in the industry and we're right in the middle of it. So we've got the wonderful luxury of our, most of our broadcast and sponsorship deals contracted through to the end of the decade. So that actually gives us some wonderful security. Um, but it means we're also locked into some fairly traditional broadcast contracts, for example, and they are very nervous of giving any content away. Um, that, and I would be arguing, as I do, um, not necessarily successfully, but, but you know, this, is, this is not cannibalizing your audience, this is building your audience. But we haven't won that argument yet. So, so we'd love to do more of that. Yeah. But, but I'm sure, like others in the room, that, that there, there is a that, that there's, there's a clash at the moment that we need to work our way through. John, you've um, you're sitting here on stage. You're wearing a very, very uh, sort of contemporary, cutting-edge blazer. You've got some uh, shoes with no laces on. It's great to see. <laughs> um, so you don't look like the traditional sports federation guy with the blazer and we, the tie. These are real questions coming in now. <laughs> So, but just for the, for the audience, for, for our listeners, explain how decisions are made. How is, it, how is the sport set up? So you've got the federation, it, the, the title of, in, you know, of, of World Athletics, and you're the CEO with the president, Lord Sebastian Coe, both incredibly proven, the right people. In terms of making decisions, in terms of the, how governance is, is, is operated and how easy is it for you to make the changes that I know you and Seb are very keen to do. Are you... Um, enormously um, hampered by the original governance or is it easier to do now? So, interesting question. I was only speaking to Seb about this last week. So Seb Co, president of World Athletics, obviously I, I work very closely with him. He came in in 2015. I, I'm much more recent than that. I came in three years ago. Um, real pleasure working with him. And, and he, he said you know, three things. We, we, we were discussing, he said, three things we've got to try and achieve. We've got to be braver. We've got to be more innovative in terms of the product we create and everything else. And we've got to make decisions quicker. Um, and, and for lots of you in the room, that's easy. You, know, you run your own 
business, your own agency or whatever, you can make decisions. And that's the background th- that I was in for many years. International federations are different. Uh, you know, we have 214 member federations. We have a council of 26 people, all of whom, by the way, are absolutely good people, 100% committed to the sport of athletics and, um, and bring good counsel. But, but federations are set up in a way that, that making radical, quick decisions is, is difficult because you have to take decisions rightly. That's the, that's the way that the sport's set up through, through the council and, and get those decisions through. And I mean, I'm very fortunate that, that in Seb, it's somewhat, he's someone who's hugely respected across the sport. So you know, he, can, he can get difficult things across the line, but, but uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's um, it, it, many of you in the room, I suspect, um, would find federation world quite frustrating. Um, I see it as a fascinating challenge, and and um, but but yeah, in, in a time where the world is changing ever accelerating rate, therefore decisions need to be made at an ever accelerating rate. I mean, we have council meetings three times a year, but actually need to make lots of decisions outside of those three set pieces a year. So it, it is a challenge, and and we've got to make sure we evolve with it. I mean, we are a very governed federation and, and quite rightly so. If you look at some of the, and you mentioned it in your introduction, you look at some of the sins of the past. I mean, until Seb came out in 2015, we weren't a, we weren't a well-run organisation. So you know, fair enough. You've got to put some governance in to make sure we are a well-run organisation now. And I can look you right in the eyes and promise you we are. And, and let me ask just on a follow-up. We, we talk on the podcast a lot about the Olympic movement, and I'm not going to ask you to opine because that would be too political. And we can, you you probably wouldn't want to. But many would say that the Olympics, which was after all, well, I suppose it was fashioned many years ago, but in the modern in the modern era from around, I think, 1896 or something like that, it, it's grown up at a time in sort of the end of the Victorian era. It may not be, some would argue, may not be fit for purpose in terms of how it's governed going forward. But also, unquestionably, you are the tail that wags the dog. Athletics is what makes the Olympics very special. How much influence is athletics able to have on the Olympic movement as things like bidding has now changed in terms of how the Olympics are? How much, on the top table of the 28 summer sports and God knows how many winter sports, how much do they listen to athletics? Just give us an idea how it works. Um, Up until recently, very little. So um, it's the IOC membership and actually the international federations haven't had a particularly central role. Now, uh, Seb is now an IOC member, so we have someone um, centrally involved. So, so um, I'm hoping we'll have more say in, in future. But, but I would argue, look, I'm biased, I would say this, but I would argue that the international federations should have a greater say in terms of, um, in, in terms of the direction of travel. But that's certainly not been the case in, um, in, in recent years. But again, we are, we are looking to work more closely with the IOC to do more innovative, relevant things. So for example, a conversation we've got going at the moment that I hope will come through is around um, the future Olympic Games, including the next one in Paris, where we actually take some of the events outside of the stadium in, into city streets, into iconic locations. Now that's something that we've proposed. And actually I've got to say, the IOC have been very, have been very receptive to that. So, so I think it's it's for us to make more of an effort as well to engage and come up with with ideas because I do get a sense, like with all rights holders, so the IOC are no different. 
um, that, that we're all cottoning on to the fact that, that we need to innovate more. We, we need to start making this happen. And we can't just sit back um, on what we've done because we'll just slowly dribble away into irrelevance. Um, even a you know, monster like, like, like the Olympics. John, how do, you, how do you balance the traditions around athletics? Because the traditions go back a long way, much further than the Football League, for example. And we, we spend a lot of time talking about tradition and, and how you modernise something like that. But essentially, athletics has changed very, very little in a couple of hundred years. I mean, they're still the same events, which is great on the one hand because you're comparing results against everybody that's ever done this throughout history and you can see that progression. But how do you, we've seen um, you know, the X Games modernise, we've seen Winter Olympics modernise. How do you get that balance right in terms of bringing new events in, new sports? You can't really create made-for-TV events because it's just it feels too fake. How do you do that? Um, so credibility is important. So you're right, you can't just jump to a place that, that isn't credible. But, but I'm happy to hold my hand up and say that, that over the last 20, 30 years, um, you know, athletics has not innovated enough. Um, and we need to innovate more, um, but we need to find that balance. And I think it's really difficult when you look at the Olympics or the current World Championships because um, you know, that's kind of set and the athletes are prepared for those events in their format. And um, it, it's, it's difficult to, in your shop window, create instant innovation. So the way we're looking to tackle it is actually create new product. So we're looking at creating a new short form World Championship event at the moment that's going to represent the very best of the best. Um, and we're going to use that as a vehicle to hopefully drive a new new moments of, of global impact in the way that our current World Championships and Olympic Games do, but also be an incubator for innovation. And when it's proven there in a less threatening way, because we're not asking people to do different things in the Olympics or the World Championships, if that's embraced, then we can potentially roll it out for them. So the way we're going to tackle it is is um, is create new product that can hopefully demonstrate uh, new ways of doing things that can just engage more with with the, with the fans because because it is um, because athletics at its, at its best is the simplest sport in the world and we're you know yes we're the number one Olympic sport and everyone gets the hundred meters but let's not forget we're also the most um, participated sport in the world we're the most accessible sport in the world people just putting their running shoes on and going for a run around the block that's still athletics. Yeah. Um, so, 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 so at, at that level, we're, we're wonderfully simple, but, but my God, we complicate things when you start looking at all of the events across track and field, and, and we need to simplify. John, I want to go up to talk about, about you and your own career, because what inspired you? You're an Olympian. You're a double Olympian. It's an extraordinary achievement to have got just even into a, an Olympic team at any discipline. What inspired you? How did you? How, what was your own personal journey to get to uh, to go to what was then Wandsworth playing to the British Olympic Association and get that and get that kit from the from the warehouse there? Um, we I, we never have the Olympic chat at World Athletics because when you work with Seb Coe, who's got <laughs> right. you know two Olympic gold medals right. and loads of world records, you don't really get involved in the Olympic chat. I got fifth at the Olympics. Doesn't doesn't quite cut it when, <laughs> when you're having that chat. So we don't really we don't really have that conversation very often. But but um, look, the, the wonderful thing about athletics is everyone does it. I mean, every one of us in this room did a bit of athletics at school and, and, and I was quite good at it and went on from there and you know I always wanted to be a professional sportsman at something and athletics was my thing and 
and it, it was great. I just, I just wish I'd, I'd met Zone Seven and Tal earlier, because okay. my career finished in early twenties, injured, and actually, if I'd had some of his uh, his tech looking after me, I might have, uh, I might have, I might have had a longer and happier career. And uh, and of all of the the athletics that you've watched, and particularly as we've talked a lot about narrative and about how you capture the imagination of not even young people, anyone who's a fan. If you look back on your own fandom as, a, as, a, as, a, as someone who loves athletics as well as having been an athlete, what do you think is the greatest single moment of athletic glory that you've ever seen? Um, well, I, I have a, a photograph on my wall signed by Roger Bannister, and, and I wasn't there in 1954. <laughs> but, but, um, but I'd love to have been there. So if, if I, I, I'd love to have been there. I'd love to have been um, in the Berlin Stadium watching Jesse Owens that's another photograph I've, I've got on my wall. Um, you know, win, win all those those medals. But for me personally, the the, the 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 most special moment I think had to be Super Saturday, London 2012. I mean, it was incredible in that 45, 60 minutes um, where we got you know the GB team. Sorry to be um, so parochial, but the GB team got you know three wonderful medals. Uh, you know, I was really involved. Those games were wonderful. Um, my, my my wife was part of the management team for Jessica Ennis Hill. You know, I, I had um, several hundred people delivering all the sport presentation in the stadium across the games. I was working with Talk Sport and Sky, and, and, and but but we carved out that evening to not work, to go in the stadium and watch it. And just, it was incredible. The atmosphere that was created, um, stellar, st stellar sport. And uh, yeah, that, that I think, I'll, it would have to go a long way to beat that moment. John, give, give us a glimpse. Um, yeah, I think there are very few Olympic athletes in this room. I think that's fair to say. Um, but just give us a glimpse. Uh, let's go back to the, the World Championships and your silver medal. Just give us a glimpse as to what it's like to compete in a major final, what goes through your head, what you have to shut out, what you have to bring in, and then the actual race itself. Long time ago now. But well, um, <laughs> so I would say that, that actually one of the things we've got to do better as a sport is, is, is tell the stories of the athletes better. Because you know, I'm hearing all the time, oh, John, you don't necessarily have the personalities that, that you had in the 80s. I, I disagree. I, I think we've got some, some brilliant personalities. I just think we, we're not telling the story well enough and connecting those athletes with the fans, okay? And, 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 and the relevance of, 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 of that point is, you know, if you take a team sport, yes, of course, you know, when the England team lost the European Championships last year, they were gutted, but two weeks later, they were back at their club and they were playing club football and probably they'd moved on to a large extent, okay? For a track and field athlete, you can dedicate your life. You can certainly dedicate four years, for example, to build up to a World Championships or Olympic Games. And everything is about that one race. And for, for me, it was 13 seconds of, of, yeah. of, of, of athletics, 10 hurdles to clear, and you make a mistake, and then it's all over. And that's huge jeopardy to, to build up to that after years and years and years. And if it goes well, wonderful, but often it doesn't go well. Um, and um, and I, 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 it's 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 incredible it's incredible pressure and I think it's 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 not unique to athletics but it's, it, it, I, I think again people don't appreciate it's probably the case in any sport but I certainly think in athletics people don't appreciate how incredibly good athletes are yeah. at what they do you know you look at other sports um, and. Um, and uh, even the, the, the super fast NFL players or soccer players, well, they're, they're nothing like, they're nothing like um, how good, how quick sprinters are. 
nothing like it. So, so um, uh, you just we've got to t- tell those stories about you know how how good the athletes are and and uh, you know the, and how much pressure is on them because um, it's all about you know building up that major championship and performing at the major championships. Well, well tell us your story of that pressure because obviously you go through the heats and I'm you know you, you get this sense on the sidelines that everyone in that race feels like I can win this gold medal. But I'm sure there's a couple of guys who think if I can just get in the top three and, and get a medal here, this would be a, an amazing you know, capstone to my career. So talk a little bit about that journey through the heats into the final and your expectations as you went through your times, you watch other people's times come in, you realize who's running well, yeah. who's not. So talk a little bit about that rising expectations and then walking out into that stadium looking down that lane and, as you say, seeing those 13 seconds and a tape at the end of it, that this could ch- literally change my life. So I was, um, I was uh, fortunate that, that, that my career, um, when I had my success, I was pretty young. So, so it, life's quite uncomplicated when you're young. Right. Um, and you have the, um, the sort of confidence of youth about you. So, so, so I swaggered up to the World Championships as a 20-year-old. Um, Believing I could win, um, so so, and I went through the the, the, the heats in the semi final. Actually, won the semi final, beating a chap called Greg Foster, who ultimately won. I was second to Greg Foster. He ultimately won, um, and and so I went to the final, absolutely expecting to win. Okay, which which um, sounds very arrogant now, and and you know, Not at all. but at twenty, you that's how you feel, isn't it? I'd, I'd be I'd be far less reassured now. I I I, I promise you. <laughs> um, but yeah, you warm up on a on a separate on a separate track, and then you um, then then you go through a tunnel and walk into the stadium, and you know, light your eyes adjust to the light, and um, you know the stadium is full of what it is sixty seventy thousand thousand people, and you, you do have to be quite careful at that moment because it's a technical event in the hurdles, and to have to make sure you don't have any self doubt, yeah. and just to remind yourself that you done a lot of preparation for this, you're ready, and this is going to go great. Because if you have any self doubt, you're dead. And then it's it's again really simple. Um, you try and react to the gun going as quickly as you can. You get left at the start, you're dead. And then you just have to rely on um, the months and months and years of training you've done to execute the rest of the race. And in hurdling, there's always someone who hits a hurdle and and and. Right. and basically knocks out the race. You just hope you're not going to be that person. I actually had a, a bit of a disaster in that race. Even though I was second, at hurdle six or seven, I, I came off the hurdle slightly off balance and I dislocated my little toe. And I had a split second, so shall I stop? Because I, you know, it was quite painful. But I thought, yeah, it can't stop. But, you, but I basically had to kind of shut down and just run a real percentage race. And so would I have won, would I have not? I don't know. But I, I basically had to, the second half of the race, I just had to kind of go in cruise mode finished second, British record, it was great. And so I was slightly disappointed in the end, but I thought, no problems, I'm 20. I was at the time the youngest medalist that they'd they'd been at the World Championships uh, in a track event. And I just thought, no problems, I've got 10 years of this. I was never fit again. And actually that was was the moment. I wish now I'd actually taken more time to enjoy it and go, this is great, instead of just thinking, this is just part of my journey. Amazing. And the thing that we must cover, um, your sport or in athletics, but also cycling as well, has been blighted by, by drugs for, for many years. And I, something we've talked very openly about. Tell us what you're doing at World Athletics, because you're, neither you or Seb have hidden from this and you've taken the steps. It was a big blight on the sport and it was everywhere. Um, what, what, what has been the, the plan of action to get things back on track? 
Yeah. So it, 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 you know, we had we had a couple of, of significant scandals um, uh, over the last twenty years. Um, one was the previous president and, and corruption around the sport, and, and the other was um, was 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 performance enhancing drugs. It, it, it's been significant across a lot of sports, but it was very high profile. Um, in track and field, from Ben Johnson in 1988, you know, all the way through to a number of other, you know, leading athletes who tested positive. And when, uh, and I can't take any credit for this because, as I said, I've only been involved the last three years. But but Seb realised this. He was elected president in 2015. One of his first acts was to create the Athletics Integrity Unit, and we we fund fully the Athletics Integrity Unit. It's it's independent. I, I don't even have a. I don't have a key to even get in the front door, but, but, but we do fund most of it. They, they raise some of their own uh, funding as well. And that's all about doping and integrity units, uh, issues rather, and de- dealing with them. And as I said, we, we, we provide about 20% of, 15, 20% of the total funding that comes into World Athletics, we actually put into the Athletics Integrity Unit because, and that's a big slug of money, but, but, but we realise how important the integrity of the sport is. And, and I've got to say, you know, the hangover from past doping problems probably lasts for a long time, probably still may be with us, but, but you know, I don't see this complacently, but I think we're in a good place. I think we're in the best place we've ever been as a sport. Um, you know, if people cheat, we catch them, and we, we, you know, we, we're, we're very open about catching them, and we, we, make, a, we, 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 we make noise about it. I mean, we, 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 uh, we position it as a, as, a, as a positive step for the sport when we catch cheats. Um, and um, as I said, I think the sport's cleaner than it's ever been. Will there still be people that cheat? Yes, there's people that cheat in every sport. But, but I don't see, and you, you two may disagree with me, but I don't see it as being a major issue in the sport right now. We have to stay really on top of it don't get me wrong but but right now I, I think we're uh, we're tackling that well and as I said investing lots of money and I actually think our model of how we've tackled this is is a model that that other sports should follow can, can you ever can you ever really stay on top of it because it's always the testing is always playing catch-up with the new drug that's been invented and you can't find it at first until you realize what it is is there any way for any of these sports cycling athletics to really stay on equal terms with the drug cheats um if you want to catch people, you can do a pretty good job. You'll never be universal, sure. I accept that. But for example, the, the, the approach that the Athletics Integrity Unit takes is not one that traditionally is taken where you turn up an event, you, 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 everyone knows you're going to be tested, and quite frankly, you'd have to be pretty stupid to get caught right. if you're at the Olympic Games. What the ARU does is an intelligence-led approach. So it's all about targeting countries, training groups, athletes that we hear intelligence about, we have suspicion about, and being all over them, turning up unannounced all through the year, and actually using, even though there's a lot of funding that goes into the ARU, inevitably it's a, it's a, it's, it's a limited resource. So using that resource to the best possible approach. Because I said, we want to catch people if they're cheating. Traditionally, that hasn't always happened in the world of sport. Yeah. Um, looking ahead, we've talked about narrative um, during this summit. We've talked about the storytelling. We've talked about potentially the kind of Netflix drive to survive type of thing. Share with us for, for the listeners some of the athletes to look forward to who you think are the, the ones to, to back and the ones to follow from around the world, the, the exceptional athletes that are coming through. Some names that we might not have heard of but we should look out for. Yeah, so we've got a World Championships coming up uh, next uh, August uh, in Budapest and then we've got the Paris Olympics the following year. So we've got a really exciting 
period um, uh, of, of, of really top class athletics. And um, some of the, everyone loves rivalries. And I think in the, in the men's sprints, uh, we have two fantastic athletes who are very different and dislike each other, which, which, which actually we don't beef. have... A, Rogers beef. Well, we don't have enough of in athletics. And actually, some of that rivalry is good. So Noah Lyles, who won the World Championships this year, actually is knocking on the door of, of, of challenging Usain Bolt's world record. So he wasn't far off. And, and, and a young guy in Arian Knighton, he's just 19 who is not very far behind Noah Lyles. And there's a real edge between those two. And I think that's hopefully a rivalry that can build over the next few years um, because everyone loves a rivalry. Um, uh, in the women's side, um, Sidney McLaughlin, the front hurdler who went for the first time ever um, in the World Championships this year, under 51 seconds, the front hurdles. You know, that's a time that would have made the final. She ran in the front hurdles final, a time that would have made the 400 meter flat Final. I mean, she's that good, and I think she can do some phenomenal things across the across the board, across the, the sprints, the hurdles, uber talented. I was talking to a coach recently, and he he uh, he said he, she's just the most talented athlete he's ever coached, and he's coached some you know, big big names o- over the years. Um, in field events, um, uh, Monde de Plantis will, I, I, I think. Pole vault, in all surveys we do, pole vault is the most popular field event. Um, uh, so, so, uh, so, so I think, I think he'll, take, he'll take the record to another level and he's a great entertainer. Um, so th- there's just two or three names for you. But, um, but uh, yeah, I- I- exciting couple of years for athletics ahead, I'm hoping. And I, actually, I'm very optimistic for, for the next year, few years, genuinely. I think um, we don't have all the solutions, but I think we know the challenges. Um, and I think, um, I think over the next few years, you know, athletics having perhaps been on a period where it hasn't particularly grown, you know, I, I really do think we can, we can go into a growth phase now in terms of more people doing it, more people facilitating it, more fans watching it, more partners coming on board to help finance and spread, spread the word. So I'm, I sit here optimistic for the future. If you get, I think if you get that storytelling component right, yeah. you've, you've got all the ingredients you need. You've, you've got a natural audience, you've got incredible talent, and there's just a massive hunger on the part of audiences all around the world to, to hear and see those stories and see them bring to life. So, you know, wh- why wouldn't you be successful if you get that part right? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, and um, uh, we've just got to make it happen now. Yeah. We, 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 we've got to do it. Um, but as I said, we're, we're taking steps. Um, I believe, you know, the next few years for us is all about innovation. It's all about new product creation. It's all about making sure we're, you know, connecting our star athletes with the fans better, particularly the younger fans. Um, another challenge we have, which is a wonderful opportunity though, is, is as I said earlier, we're the most participated work, sport in the world. Three or four billion people do what many of us in this room do, stick on a pair of trainers and go for a run around the block, okay? But most of those people don't necessarily consider themselves as, as athletes and certainly don't necessarily have an interest in elite athletics. And we've got to somehow, we've largely failed up to now, but we've got to somehow connect with at least a percentage of those three or four billion people and get them to realise that what they're doing is athletics. And actually, they should have an interest. They should be, they should be a fan to a degree of people that just do it quite a lot quicker than they do. Um, so again, that's another challenge, but, but a big opportunity that if we can crack, it's, 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 um, it will, will, will open up uh, some big opportunities for us. 
Fantastic. John, look, it's been, it's been so much fun talking to you, not just here, but in and around the conference this week. It's been really, really enjoyable. You're a huge presence. You're a great company and a hell of an athlete. So listen, thanks for stepping up here with Giles and I and doing this live. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure and, and well done for the conference the last two days. I mean, r- really good job. It's funny you mention that because we've got one more special guest joining us who doesn't actually know anything about it. Uh, we're going to bring Roger up here because he specifically told us that he wasn't going to come and sit up here. It was, this is his time off. So Giles and I can take no credit for the conference whatsoever, but Roger can, and we're going to make sure he gets his moment in the sun and ask him a few questions about the last couple of days. So, Rog, our fellow groundsman, you're not getting off that easily. Up you come. Thanks, John. That was fantastic. I wasn't expecting this. No, we knew you weren't expecting that. You can't, you can't control everything, Roger. <laughs> How did it go? How did the podcast go? What, you weren't listening? No, oh, no I've been wrapping up with the various <sighs> things. You, you, see, this is what he does every time, isn't it? <laughs> what, what we established was, Giles is wearing a pair of trainers, therefore he's an athlete. That's essentially, in a nutshell, what we've discovered in the last hour. We've just, look, we've just had a great chat with John about athletics, the future of athletics, but we wanted to talk to you about the conference and yeah. talk a little bit about the last couple of days. Um, it's been phenomenal, and that's not just because we're mates. I think everyone in this room that I've spoken to has has echoed those sentiments. It's been a phenomenal couple of days for so many reasons, and we can, we can all talk about those amongst ourselves later. But for, for, from your perspective, you set out to do something these past couple of days. You had goals that you wanted to achieve. You brought uh, an invitation-only audience together of, of extraordinarily high-caliber individuals. So talk, talk to us about how these last couple of days have been for you, because all of us have had two minutes of your time as you've checked everything was okay and then fluttered off into the distance. Tell us a little bit about the last couple of days for you. Well, I would start before the last couple of days. You know, what, why did I do it? And why did we do it? Um, you know, I've been in this industry for 40 years now, and I've met a lot of good souls along the way. And I just I wanted a lot of them to come because they've known me for a long time. And I've had the ability to choose the ones that I, I, I call the good girls and guys. So that was the first thing. Then the second thing is that together, the three of us have created a community around this podcast where I think we've treated all the guests with a lot of respect. We've not gone for a cheap line or, a, or, or some kind of scoop and, and we've tried to do a service to the industry. So that was a natural community that I, that, that I wanted to come here. And then that just link, links with what, what I do with um, startups and early stage phenomenal young people. And I thought we could bring them together it would be a good mixture of, you know, industry veterans, um, podcast guests of really high profile and young people with energy and ideas. And I had an idea that a smaller event would work. You know, everybody says to me, said to me, and I've said this myself, big conferences are difficult now. Too many people, too many people trying to sell. You don't get any time. You, you, I mean, there's other people who do podcasts that say, well, how do you manage the etiquette of networking at a conference? That's the last thing in my mind. I just got 40 people here and say, no, as you say, Grant, knock yourself out. All I can do is make sure the buses are in time, the boat's on time, the food is good, and everything else would take care of itself. Rod, you're um, seen by, by some people, certainly uh, in the industry that I know, that is something of a, a crystal baller, that you're a bit of a bellwether for the, for the sports industry. And we've had some extraordinary quality of guests and some great debates. What have you learned this week that maybe has surprised you of things that hadn't occurred to you in your own, sort of within the business of sport? Well, that's a, that's a great question. You know, uh, one of the things, and, and like, 
listen, I always say this, one of the things that gives me an insight over the horizon is because I work with startuppers and I steal their ideas and their energy. And I just kind of like, as I, as I joke with my son, I'm really good at scraping information, representing it and sounding good. That's all it is. Um, so, you know, I, I listened as much, I tried to moderate the, these two days. I didn't offer a lot of opinions. Uh, and, you know, I tried to put people on the panels that had different views. So we had a panel with um, Dan Porter of Overtime uh, and Lucas von Kranatz of One Football, who have both been hugely successful, but in a different way. And then we had Ant Arena on as well, who's doing something similar. And I thought that really went, went well. But one thing, if I can say, uh, and I'm just thinking whether that was under Chatham House rules or not, somebody was asked, why did you get involved with this particular rights holder? And why did you want to invest or sponsor them? And the reply was because they were open and transparent. They didn't try to sell me smoking mirrors. And that was a moment I thought, God, you know, like people will pay for just the right relationship, whether as an investor, whether as an investee company finding investors. What I've taken out of this is the humanity of finding the right connection is really important. Yeah, you know, Rod, that comes back to one of the, the core foundations of this entire project from when we started it over four years ago. You know, the one word that we said was important was authentic, right? This was all about authenticity. And that, you know, that what you just said there speaks to that, right? Everybody who's attended this conference is authentic in all their different ways. Um, and, you know, you've, you've gathered a group of people here who have been extraordinary in their willingness to share experiences, to share successes, failures, ideas. Um, you know, and this, as someone who's been to more conferences than I care to remember over the years, who's spoken at I don't know how many conferences, these last two days have been a truly extraordinary group of people um, and a set of conversations that anybody outside this room who's in this business would have given their eye teeth to be part of the conversation. You know, there's that, for anyone that's seen Hamilton, there's that song about being in the room where it happens. And this was the room where it happens. These conversations have been, for someone who's not in the sports industry, uh, you know, I've sat here as a privileged fan to have a, a chance to listen to all these incredibly brilliant minds talk about the industry. And, you know, for me, not only is it in safe hands, the level of innovation, the level of creativity, the level of, of, of creative thinking in this industry is just blown me away. I mean, it has honestly blown me away. That's and, and, great to hear. And you are a debt of thanks for putting this group together because it's extraordinary. Well, no, all, all I did really was put it together and, and then they've, they've done that. You know, the, the, it is in a difficult moment and I always think difficult moments are moments of opportunity as opposed to problem. You know, like the moments of plain vanilla are where 90% of people can do okay. It's the moments of disruption that the 10% that I think we've tried to gather here are going to do well. And, you know, that's what we've tried to bring together. Grant, we can't let, Roger, I mean, you, you accuse me of wearing underpants when I, do, uh, when I do podcasts, but we can't let Roger get away. I mean, look at these trousers. Are you about to play golf or do judo? What, 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 are, what are they all about? <laughs> we, we are in Italy. Um, these are nice trousers. These are my favourite trousers. <laughs> But maybe no longer. <laughs> the very fact that you have a pair of favourite trousers speaks volumes, Roger. Yeah, <laughs> well, listen, um, yeah I, would, I would just like to thank everybody. You know, like, I know I'm very aware, Grant, that I haven't spent a lot of time in the old conference way of 
Are you okay? Is everything fine? Have you got your bus What's, sorted? We haven't been able to burn you off. You've been on everyone's shoulder trying to check everything's okay from morning to so, night. So um, I've just been delighted to see everybody interacting on their own. I knew they would. Um, and uh, what I'd like to say is everybody's saying, well, what's happening next year? Um, I didn't expect this to be a next year. I, I didn't. I thought, if I can be really honest with the two of you, I, I thought this was a little bit of a, like, denouement for my own little journey that in the last few years has been about sport tech and the startups. And they said, well, here's a whole little line that brings that to a close. I kind of get the sensation that's not going to be the line. You know, like all I've had the last, you know, day is don't make it any bigger, don't make it any bigger and make sure I get an invite back. You know, like, so uh, the only thing I would say is the people that came this year, I've got every opportunity to come back again before anybody else gets invited. So let me know and we'll get it going for next year. Fantastic. Well, you know what? We've only got one thing left to do, right? And that is to thank everybody here for being part of the conference, to thank John Ritten for being our guest, and to let everybody know that if they're not following us on Twitter, because this is going out on the on the podcast, they can do so at EntertainR, that's the word A-R-E. You can follow me, if you don't already, at T-T-N-Y-G-H. You can follow me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And you can follow me right here at RPM Como, as in the lake. All together now, as in as the lake. As in the lake. <laughs> Beautiful, Wonderful. thank you. Thank you. I didn't expect that. No, you Thank you. Thank you.